Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. Before we get started today, I just want to let you know, I'm starting a creative revolution. And I'm wondering, are you a creative revolutionary? If you've ever bristled at the idea that your creative dream is frivolous or just a hobby or is only for certain special people, you probably are. Throwing off those ideas is truly revolutionary in a culture that insists that they are the actual objective truth. Here's a hint. They're not. If you'd like some revolutionary company, my six-week Creative Revolutionaries group starts May 5th. Get the details at the link in the show notes. I hope to see you there. We've all heard the term creative accounting, generally used to refer to someone who has cooked the proverbial books or otherwise done something underhanded financially. I wanted to hear about the actual creativity involved in accounting, so I contacted Linda Schwartz, who not only is an accountant, but was a partner in a big four firm's fraud investigation and dispute services practice. She's taken part in a wide variety of financial investigations, has served as an expert witness in associated court cases, and runs the forensic accounting curriculum at the Eisenberg School of Management at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. She's also my cousin. Linda set me straight right away on my very narrowed idea of what accounting really entails before moving on to what an accounting investigation looks like, how fraud usually happens, the role of an expert accounting witness in court, and what she's learned from teaching at UMass. Oh, and she also explains why she hates the idea of creative accounting with such a passion and would prefer to think of accounting as a curiosity-based practice instead. I have a feeling you'll learn a lot from and may well be surprised by what Linda has to say. Here's our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Linda. I am so, so curious to see where this conversation is going to take us. You do a thing that most people think is not creative, which is why I wanted to talk to you in the first place. Well, I'm flattered. Thank you. (laughs) So before we get into the parts of accounting that are and aren't creative, whether called that legitimately or not. I mean, I've literally known you forever. So, but I don't, I don't remember when we were kids ever noticing that you had a particular mathematical thing going on. So I'm, I don't know how it is that you ended up in accounting in the first place. Well, we have a family relationship and our grandfather was an accountant. And when he was advising his son, my father, he said, you should study accounting because you'll always be able to understand the language of what's happening in business. And my father did study at least some accounting and ultimately had a career in computer sciences. And he, but he always said that 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 baseline knowledge was helpful for him. So when I was starting my college studies, It was at a time when the economy was down and my dad gave me the same advice that our grandfather gave him, which was, you should study accounting, you'll always have a job. But I I do wanna stop with with one of the predicates in your question and kind of kick it back to you because you asked about my, my math skills. And it's a real mistake to think about accounting, financial reporting, financial analysis, as a mathematical exercise. It does use arithmetic and sometimes more complex math, but the mathematicians laugh at the business uh, calculus classes because they're they're light. In fact, most accounting is actually a language. Okay. It's a language that describes what's happening and has happened in a business and and oftentimes it's financial condition. So it allows us through its own vocabulary and structure and syntax to be able to describe what's happening in ways that we can compare different businesses, that we can manage businesses, that we can understand what's going on. And accounting is very much a human construct. It doesn't necessarily conform to any laws of nature. You don't go and study in a microscope to find out 
the, the better rules, some human being, and, and we actually know his name, um, <laughs> devised this system that became this language that we use. And it has all of the vagaries and idiosyncrasies of any other human language. And it is used to convey things clearly, and it's sometimes used to obfuscate. But it's a language that employs some arithmetic and some mathematics, if you ask me. So can you give us an idea of when, when you're describing it as a language that does all of these things, can you give us an example of what that looks like? Well, the first thing to understand about accounting generally is that one of its jobs is to create reports, to literally tell people what happened or what the current situation is. And financial reporting has a very structured set of traditional reports. One of them is called a balance sheet or a statement of financial position. One's called an income statement or sometimes a profit and loss statement. It has a couple of different names in different kinds of businesses. And there are some other statements and schedules that are, are relatively standard. In some regulatory contexts, there are specific reports that are, are in standard formats. The reason for the standardization is not, again, because of science, it's for comparability. It's so that we can, when we don't have to reinvent and ask each other, what does this word mean? It's because we all went to school to understand what this word means. And when we look at companies that are maybe in the same industry or in similar situations, we can say, how's this one doing compared to that one? Or what's the situation? How does this one perform? What is its current situation? Why does that matter? Well, it matters incredibly right now. So some people have said that medical professionals are the first responders in the COVID era. One of the heads of the accounting profession says, accountants are the first responders of the business fallout that's happened in the COVID era. And so some people who are not, for example, in the financial reporting context are accountants inside businesses who are busy trying to figure out how long can I stay in business before I run out of cash? Mm -hmm. How many people can I keep their health insurance going, even if I don't have revenue coming in? We both know someone who works in low-income housing finance and you know, trying to figure out, well, how much forbearance do I need to get from my lenders so that I can allow people to stay in their homes as long as possible? How many people do we think will will pay or not pay? And how does that, and the information that is underneath all of those decisions are the numbers, you know, and, and part of that is not just the standard reports, but what we might call managerial accounting, the questions of how do I gather and use information about what's going on in my business? And whether, whether that's a for-profit business or a not-for-profit business, whether it's one person or, you know, thousands of people, understanding how all these pieces are coming together is, has been critically important because we can't count on things continuing the way they have always been. They never do actually. But in this environment, the accountants have been under a lot of pressure to try to figure out what is happening and how do we respond? So I, I think that that's a real link with the kind of curiosity that you've been talking about. It's, it's about asking ourselves, what can this information tell us? Okay. So you basically took your dad's advice and grandpa's advice sort of at the same time and, and decided to try accounting, but you obviously liked it enough to stick with it at least. It's been, so I've had now a career that's pretty much over, I hate to say it, almost 30 years. Um, I started off in a very traditional area of accounting and ended up kind of in this subspecialty of accounting we call forensic accounting. But yeah, it's, it's been a terrific area of work. As much as some of it is very structured, for the most part, I have worked throughout my career on different projects, sometimes different projects in, you know, throughout the year. And every company, every client, every project is a little different. So taking your basic understanding and adapting it to meet the needs of the business or the person in front of you has been just really cool. 
And I've gotten to work on some crazy, oddball, exciting, weird projects in the forensic accounting space that have been, you know, sometimes you can't always talk about everything because of confidentiality rules, but there've been some wacko ones and things I would love, you know, dirty war stories that we, you know, we sometimes tell over a beer with enough information left out so that we don't breach any confidences, but it's, you know, there's nothing like it. And I'm, I continue to serve clients actively because I really do love the work. So there's so many things that I want to say to that. The first of which is I'm really kind of bummed about the confidentiality thing because I would love to hear the dirty war stories and I bet everyone else would too, but I know you can't do that. But it sounds to me like what you were just saying about adapting things to work for different people is probably, and obviously I don't know what I'm talking about, so you get to correct me if I'm wrong, where a whole lot of the creativity lies. Does that sound right to you? Well, let me tell you a couple of war stories and satisfy <laughs> a couple of curiosity. And then I'll, 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 kind of, I'll kind of talk about how I see curiosity playing into this. And I, I think I'd rather use the word curiosity than creativity. It, generally, forensic accountants work in one of two major classes of work. Forensic, at least in my world, means suitable for court. So we're always working, assuming that things might end up in court. We might end up having to testify about it. And sometimes those are actually things, projects that relate to litigation, like court cases between companies, like criminal matters, like things that might go before a regulatory proceeding, even if they haven't gone to court. Right now I'm serving as an arbitrator in a business dispute. So it can be serving as a, an arbitrator or as a, a neutral person, or it can be working with one side or the other. And oftentimes the role of the forensic accountant there is to help the judge and the jury understand the financial information. Sometimes we have to find it. So we have to dig it out or, or help through the legal process to gather the right information. And sometimes we have to assemble it or analyze it. It's rare that you have every piece of data that you want. So figuring out what you do with that information can be, can require a lot of judgment and thought and curiosity and also adaptability. And the other major area, I mentioned that there were two, is investigation work. So if there's an allegation or a problem, even, and, and we don't really know whether it might end up in court, even that investigation area is considered forensic. Now that's different from say a regular audit, which might cover a whole financial statement. This is a very focused thing on a specific allegation or concern. And it's focused on reaching a conclusion about the merits of that allegation. So that might be something like a whistleblower calls in and says, somebody stole money. Or a whistleblower calls in and says, this contract process, you know, we're giving these contracts out for construction and the procurement officer is giving it to his buddy and getting a kickback. Or this business is, you know, relies on bribery in Argentina. So let me give you an idea of sort of the range of work I've done in, in forensics. I've worked on investigating the allegation that the head of a medical organization was embezzling money that would have otherwise gone for the benefit of physician services for children. I investigated allegations that in a family business, one brother was taking funds from another family member and had drained their accounts. My team was retained um, to work with the attorney general in Massachusetts to help the state police and the attorney general investigate and prosecute thefts from the public treasury in Massachusetts from its unclaimed property fund. I worked for a couple of years on Enron related litigation. So trying to figure out when Enron went bankrupt and understand some of the detailed transactions that were, were well publicized. I've worked on bribery and corruption investigations as part of a global team. So calling at night and talking to colleagues around the world and, and helping pull all of the information on global investigations together. And I testify sometimes. So I testified recently on a case that involved allegations of fraud. And I've helped in the background sometimes 
work with cases where one business says, you did me wrong. And another business says, no, I didn't. And maybe there's 2 million at issue. Sometimes there's 50 million at issue. Sometimes the cases have been as big as a couple billion of claim. So they can be very large or small. And what's common is that they need somebody who can figure out what happened, how, what was the impact, and how do we communicate that when we do finally get to court? And those are all the things that forensic accountants help with. And ideally, we also help companies prevent bad things from happening. So it would be much, be much better to be on the prevention side than in, on the, um, the ER side, but we do sometimes joke that forensic accountants are the emergency room of accounting. So is one side of that equation more enjoyable for you? Would you rather investigate what happened or would you rather prevent it? Prevention is hard. Prevention is hard. And it has to do in part because, and I'm thinking mostly about financial frauds when I'm making this comment, um, it is very easy to understand um, the value of an ounce of prevention after you've paid for something going wrong. But it's very hard to think about the good housekeeping, the hard work of creating good financial management, good anti-fraud controls. They take work, they take effort, they take investment. And it's hard to justify that investment just because it's the right thing to do. Because if you prevent something from happening, it has no cost. And so it, you know, the cost benefit is really hard to prove until after you've had an, an experience. So companies that have had fraud events occur are always willing to remediate, to fix it, you know, to, to close the barn door. But it's, it's harder to justify and harder to maintain the level of skepticism and rigor that good management takes. Good management's hard work. I have to think, just based on that, that probably, and again, correct me where I'm wrong, that an awful lot of fraud is unintentional, that people think, oh, it's going to be okay, we're not meaning to defraud anybody to do anything wrong, and we're going to be fine, so we don't need to do that, and then one day something happens, and they realize that something's gone horribly wrong, and they're in a whole heck of a lot of trouble, and oops. Does that sound? Well, you know, we, I'm not sure I would quite agree with that, because, you know, Fraud is different than an error. Okay. Right. So an error is something where somebody makes an oops and they say, you know, it went horribly wrong and I made a mistake. Um, and the difference between an error and, and a potentially fraudulent act is, is usually the intent. Although the lawyers in your audience will probably cringe when they hear me say that because fraud is always a legal conclusion. Mm-hmm. I should probably just say it, I have never passed the bar and I'm not qualified to render legal conclusions. And the definition of fraud depends on the context. So for example, some kinds of regulatory fraud like perhaps Medicare fraud, merely making a series of improper claims is considered a false claim or may be considered a fraudulent claim even without actual intent. But generally, when we think about the difference between an oops and, um, and a fraud or a potentially fraudulent act, we think about something that, that harms or deprives someone else, something that has a level of deceit, like they're hiding. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a robbery. It's a, it's a hidden loss that someone experiences with, without maybe knowing it or maybe without knowing it right away. And, we, and it's generally thought to be intentional. But let me go back to your question, which is, is, it, is there sort of a slippery slope where, where people are surprised? Yeah, the most amazing thing that I think I've, I've come to conclude over time is that human behavior has a, has a huge amount of elasticity. <laughs> you know, <laughs> We, we often teach students, we say that there's this image of a fraud triangle of three attributes that are common to a lot of financial frauds, which is 
pressure, rationalization, and opportunity. So something is pressing you or drawing you in, maybe it's greed or, or fear, you know, fear of reprisal, fear of losing your job. Rationalization, which is the ability to say there's a good reason for this. Mm -hmm. Maybe I need it badly, or this is the way it's supposed to be, or we've always done it this way, or everyone's doing it. But the thing that I'm, I've come to believe is that I can't, I can sometimes identify pressure and rationalization through inquiry. I can sometimes identify it after the fact, but the one thing I can almost always control before is opportunity. I can reduce the opportunity that people in my organization have to unfettered access to the means to perpetrate a fraud. And some of the studies that I've seen have suggested that while there are, are a number of bad actors in the world, lots of people do start their bad behavior somewhat innocently. They kind of slip into it and the opportunity is some, functions somewhat like a temptation. And, and I have to think that, that reducing opportunity and, and doing that good management, that good housekeeping, good anti-fraud controls are actually part of healthy organizations and help people act ethically. And that it's, it's not a good thing to let temptations lay around to, to draw people or give people opportunities for improper behavior. And I, I suspect that some would not fall into it if they did not have that opportunity. That makes sense. So when you talk about intent, Again, I feel like such a clueless layperson here, but hey, that's what I am. We've, over the last couple of years, we've heard a lot about how hard it is to prove intent legally. So how much of that can you figure out from looking at somebody's books? And how much of that, when you go to testify, are you responsible for proving? Or is that really on the lawyer and they're taking what you show them and it's their job to say this proves intent? It's actually a great, great question because accountants and forensic accountants who are testifying and advocates actually have very different roles. So the first thing I think of is that my job as a forensic accountant, whether and a forensic accountant, particularly who's testifying, is that I have a responsibility to look at the facts with integrity and with objectivity. So I have to kind of call it like I see it. That said, my job in the courtroom or preparing for the courtroom is to help the person who is deciding, the judge or the jury. And I have specialized knowledge. I know how to speak this language and they don't. I know what the words mean. I know what the records look like. I know what to ask for. And I know how to put them together in a way that makes, that has integrity. And I know how to communicate about that. So my job is to assist the judge or jury in understanding the information that they need to reach a good conclusion. So I will form an opinion or sometimes I summarize information, but I'm, I'm pulling together information about, for example, if it were, if it's an investigation that I'm testifying about, I'm describing the work that I've done, the evidence as I see it, within my area of specialty. In some cases, like if I'm asked to calculate the damages, you know, how much, what was the impact of this thing? I would use the kind of normal customary practices that we do to calculate damages. And I'd be ready to explain, how did I get this information? How did I pull it together? What was the answer? And what does this mean for the decision maker? But I'm not, the, the important thing is I'm neither the advocate nor am I the decision maker. So the person who actually draws the conclusion as to whether it's fraud is that judge or jury. They make the decision about, they call them the, the finder of fact. They make the decision. What is the factual conclusion of what happened? If I've done my job well, they should go back in the jury room and say, this is easy. It's just like Linda explained. And then they, you know, they come to the conclusion that I have because I have made that evidence understandable 
contextual, and clear. By contrast, the attorneys have a different job. They're going to argue about the law, they're going to argue about the proceeding, and they're going to advocate for the client's interest. And that's a bit different than the, the accountant's responsibility to, to be objective and to have integrity with respect to their opinions. Not meaning to suggest that, that the attorneys don't have integrity, but the, the role and the responsibility under their professional standards is defined a bit differently. It's important for, for participants in that, that legal process, whether it goes to trial or not, to really understand their obligations and their, their role and to fulfill it. But that said, as I, as I mentioned, I sometimes think that some of these cases, whether they're investigations or, or legal cases, I sometimes joke like they are half soap opera, half garage <laughs> sale, and half, you know, technical financial material. So I, I have the story of what happened. I have the story of what's going on with the case. I, I might have a starter set of information that the attorneys have collected or the, the clients have collected or that, and I may have to search for more information from the public domain, or I might have to use whatever other processes I have to gather additional information. Maybe I'm going to be interviewing people or looking in the numeric or, or electronic data. I might be reviewing everybody's emails <laughs> and reading what they said or their text messages, or there are lots of different kinds of evidence I might pull together depending on the kind of case. So that's part of the fun of it, because if you have this dog's breakfast of what's available, you know, you've got to say, where else could I look for it? Where might it be? How can I test the, how can I validate whether this information is reliable? How can I compare one thing to another? How do I find what I'm not seeing? Ooh. How do I look for disconfirming information? Because it's easy to fall in love with your own theory. How do I mm -hmm. test whether or not my approach is reasonable? Are there other ways that someone could look at this? Because the other thing that's very common in forensic accounting is that there is sometimes an opponent who is doing a similar study and may come to a different conclusion. And it's also common that you could be cross-examined. So I will face disconfirming information. So I've got to, I've got to begin that process from the beginning and test the reliability, the completeness, and whether, whether the picture I'm seeing is really representationally faithful. So that's, it requires a huge amount of, of curiosity and flexibility. You can tell I'm avoiding the word creatively, right? I know. <laughs> I should it's explain, okay, we're gonna talk I should about explain that. why. Go for it. Because creative accounting is like a dirty word. Mm -hmm. Creative accounting means a slime ball. It means a person that lacks integrity. It's the kind of thing that, that I, you wish you could drum out of the profession. And of course, there are people that have used this language to, to tell a story that isn't quite true or isn't quite complete. And there are more creative accounting jokes than I want to relay because I wish I could stamp them out. And at the same time, it is creative in the sense that you do have to bring your whole, your whole intellectual capacity to the, to the exercise. And I think there's a little joy in it too. There's, there's a joy in unwrapping information that makes things clear. And there's a particular satisfaction in making good information available to settle complex disputes. Sometimes I think the jury just deserves to have the right information to make their decision. And the world is not made better when we make things more confusing and we, we obfuscate what happened, or we, you know, we kind of hide behind confusion. Mm -hmm. And so when I can deliver something that makes it clear, that, that can, feel, can feel very uh, purposeful. I would think it has to feel pretty good when you know somebody did something they weren't supposed to do, and the information that you provide in a court case sees that justice is done. 
Yeah, I tend to work less on criminal matters, but I have. Mostly, I, I think I have a, a sense of compassion because you, if you want to know a lot about somebody, read their checkbook. You know, <laughs> it, it's, you know, it is certainly true that people have done some very bad things in the world. But I try in the course of the work to hold as long as possible two competing thoughts in mind. What if it's all bad? <laughs> what if it's all good? You know, sometimes there are explanations for things that look all bad at the beginning. And sometimes things that look pretty much okay really aren't. But the thing that really helps make all of that clear is the evidence. So, you know, if you hold the theories open in your mind as long as possible and try to be objective, one, pretty, pretty soon the evidence makes one of them not possible. And then the conclusion is relatively clear. But it's rare that it's all black and it's rare that it's all white. That sounds like most of life. Indeed. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's kind of motherhood and apple pie, isn't it? That, 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 you know, surprise, the world is complex. Right, right. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's interesting with the creative accounting thing, because I feel like part of why I wanted to talk to you was sort of to redeem that idea. But in your case, you kind of have both sides of the coin, because you're looking at the downside of accounting used wrongly, and you're working creatively to fix it. And, you know, to build on what you said a minute ago, it really sounds to me like you're using a whole lot more than just straight accounting to do that. When you're looking at all these things and asking all these questions about what, what do I not know and how do I figure out what I don't know and that kind of thing, you're, you're going way beyond what most of us think of when we picture a spreadsheet and, you know, the person who keeps the books. Well, even to get away from the unique aspects of forensic accounting. I, re I remember very early in my career when I was doing the more traditional kinds of accounting work, one of my dear friends said to me, I just could never do what you do, Linda. And I said, what, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, I just couldn't do that work. And I said, well, I, I don't understand your comment. And she said, I just couldn't work with numbers all day. I need to talk to people. I need to interact with people all day. And I thought she has no idea what I do for a living because mm -hmm. the numbers don't come from God. They come from <laughs> Jane who keeps all the accounts payable. And they come from Bob who does this process. And they come from Jamal who does this thing and Jing who does that part. And in order to test, or at that point I was working as an auditor in, in, in order to figure out something about those processes, I had to understand how they did their work. And, you know, the best way to find out how somebody does their work is to ask them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would go from person to person in the, in the accounting department and say, you know, I, this is what I understand about the process of what you do. Is this right? How does it work if it doesn't, you know, tell me, walk me through your process, look at this transaction. And then I'd ask them lots of questions. And I had to do all of that without really making myself too hated in the, in the department. They had other things to do. Nobody ever likes an audit. So you want it to be as painless as possible and as professionally appropriate, but at the same time friendly, you know, easy to work with as you did this, this, this process. So I had to be a little bit of a diplomat. I had to be an interviewer. I had to be technically competent in what I was doing. And I had to be able to fix the copier and, and, you know, make coffee and go to the next client and do the same thing in a different cultural environment and then go to another client and do that in a different industry in a different kind of business with a different team. So in some respects, most accountants, I would say, or most financial professionals have to be part, part technical you know, there is still the arithmetic part. There is still is the, the Excel spreadsheet. There still is analytic software. There's databases. There are financial reporting software. There's all sorts of stuff. So you need to know your tools. But oftentimes we use the tools in lots of different ways. 
And I, I sometimes say about forensic accounting, it's the same toolbox. It's just a different context. I'm just taking it to a different kind of job site. That works. That makes sense. So before we get too far away from this subject, I am curious to know, especially because of what we've already talked about, that, you know, obviously there's a fair bit of pressure when you're going to testify. Did that really, I mean, did it take a while to get used to that? I would imagine if it were me, I'd be completely freaked out the first time I had to go into court and testify. So I don't know how that was for you, but I'm hoping you'll tell me. It can be the hardest day of your, of your week and <laughs> maybe your month because the purpose of testimony is, is to convey your work clearly and nobody can do that for you. You can't delegate preparation for testimony. You need to know all of the, the work you've done in detail. You cannot, the purpose, one of the other purposes of testimony of cross-examination is to knock a witness out, to prove that they are not reliable, not appropriate, not professional, not accurate, not unbiased, and shouldn't be, you know, at best shouldn't be paid attention to, and at worst shouldn't work in this field again. So I'm always very cognizant of the fact that my my personal reputation is on the line and that it's important that my opinion, whatever I've done, um, withstand this kind of scrutiny. And so when I, when I teach students about this, I tell them the first, the first line of defense is do good work and do reliable work that complies with the standards. Be, be unbiased, call it like you see it and be thorough and be personally involved in the work so that you know what you're talking about, that it wasn't the work of, of some junior person on your team, that it was your work that you take responsibility for. And then most of us who do testify don't do it till later in our careers because from a practical perspective, clients want a person who is, has some significant experience because those are the people that are believable, mm -hmm. but also those are the people who are, have, have been around the block a few times. And, and many of us have specialized training to be ready for the specific aspects of, of trial testimony or for, of, of deposition testimony. And I've, I've been lucky enough to have some of that training and it's helped a lot. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, not that I would imagine that somebody would just send you into court stone cold for the first time, but still, does that involve like an actual practice testimony scenario at all? Or is it just, here's what to expect? It depends on the case. So I've had the chance when I was with one of the big firms, they, they had a, a training session for people who worked in this area where we got to testify on a, on a case study and we testified before focus groups and we got feedback and that was really helpful. I've sometimes, you know, the best training has just been the years that I helped other witnesses get ready for their testimony where I was the junior person on the team. And I would say I, I read a lot of transcripts before I made one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I sat in a bunch of depositions before I gave one. Um, I sat in the benches in the trial and listened to other people to give their testimony. And that helped a lot. And still, even though it's, it's a more mature subspecialty within accounting, there's still a lot of us who learn how to, how to do this kind of work by apprenticeship with others who have done it before us. That makes sense. I, I certainly if I had to do something like that would feel better if I had worked with someone who knew what they were talking about before I had to go do it. Yeah. But since every case is different, ultimately True. when you do, when you do lead a project, when you're the person who has to, has to call the final ball on it, it's a, it's different to be in the chair than to be the person sitting next to the chair. Oh yeah. So, yeah, I'm not sure. And there's probably anything that can really truly prepare you for being the person who's being asked the questions the first time. Yeah, 
Yeah, but that's so much like everything else in life. That's true. You know, you, you, how many things when you got done, you said, I never thought I would do that. Oh, yeah. And then when you're done, you're on to the next. So fair enough. One step. So I did want to make sure that we have time to talk about teaching because that's such a different kind of thing to be turning it around and, and being the one who's teaching and training other people. And I don't know how you ended up starting on that and what that's taught you in the process. Cause I know as a former teacher, it's kind of hard to teach without learning at the same time. I thought I knew everything before I started teaching and boy, was I wrong. First, I, I have to say the experience of, of developing a curriculum of interacting with students and of working with students each group, each cohort that comes into the classroom, I seem to learn something more about the things that I thought I already knew well. And it has really helped my, my career. I, I sometimes think that each part of, of, of the work I do in the profession strengthens the other. And that's certainly true of teaching. I started teaching in part because I was already involved with the university that I teach at, at University of Massachusetts at Amherst. I was on the accounting advisory board because I had been a partner of one of the big four firms. And we had a relationship with the school and it was my alma mater. And for a long time, I was the firm's representative or one of the firm's representatives on this advisory committee. And the university wasn't teaching any forensic accounting. And I thought, well, students like it. Other schools are inviting me to speak. Why aren't we doing this? And I brought it up in a committee meeting, which probably was not as politically kind as it could have been. <laughs> and then I brought it up at another committee meeting. And at the second committee meeting, the, the chair of the department pulled me aside and said, well, we'd really like to do this, but we don't have anyone who has your expertise. Would you be willing to work with us? So at first I taught one workshop, just a one credit workshop. And then I did another workshop because the information I had was just too much for a one credit thing. And then the next thing they said was, we're thinking about making me making this a whole class. Would you be willing to build it out? So for the next few semesters, I was an adjunct building classes. And then at some point I said, how much do you have to teach before you're part of the faculty? <laughs> and they said, well, you know, if you teach so many sections, I'm, I'm already teaching that many sections. So I became part of the faculty on a part-time basis. And I now direct a four course sequence in forensic accounting at, at the Eisenberg School at UMass. And that's part of the master's program in accounting. The nice thing is the, the program's all fully online. So it's drawing students a lot from New England as I'd expect from UMass, but now increasingly we're seeing more students from around the country. And that's kind of exciting as well. That's very cool. I think it's COVID because I think students don't feel like they need to, to be in Western Massachusetts to learn anything. They might be. But at least one of my students said that she relocated to Mexico because why not? <laughs> and a few students have come to us from around the country. So that's, that's been really kind of exciting. That sounds so cool. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I'm wondering, because we still have a little bit of time, if, if we have sufficiently addressed the whole creative accounting thing, or if there's anything else you might like to say about that. Well, I will say this about curiosity as opposed to creativity. One of the things that, that is kind of a hallmark of my profession is the idea of skepticism, that we don't take it on face value. We check it or we build it up from the evidence. And if someone asks us a question, we can show them. Um, and there is, there is really something that is a little, a little bit creative in skepticism because it requires imagining how things might, might be different. 
and it requires as as i i said sort of the idea that it you know maybe it's right maybe it's not mm -hmm. and holding open the possibility that you might not know everything that is that's a very liberating thought that we don't know everything and 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 asking questions is a great way to find out and finding more information. Sometimes finding more information is about pestering someone a little bit more. And sometimes that's asking the obnoxious question, like, <laughs> can you show me the evidence, please? And sometimes it's asking a different question, like looking at the evidence a different way, because oftentimes, and this is particularly true, of intentional misstatements. People want it to look normal, but they don't always create a three-dimensional fiction. Sometimes they just create a, sc a screen of reasonableness. If you look around the screen, if you look at the information a slightly different way, um, sometimes you see, you see something you might not have seen if you had not been curious. And another way that I think that skepticism helps us is by saying, how can I look at the data or the information in a fundamentally different way? So if I would normally ask about it on a daily or on a on monthly basis, what would happen if I looked at it on a weekly basis? A person who's trying to, to, to juice the end of the month may not juice the third week of the month. What if I compared things that I had never compared before? What if I said, let's take all this data and throw it on a map? Used to be that was really hard. Now there's software that does that in a heartbeat. And then you say to yourself, what's that thing over there? We don't have any business in that city. And so visualizing data, as opposed to looking at it in a structured financial statement might give you an entirely different picture or taking data that you might not normally compare, like data might reconcile with itself, but not with the information in another system or not with the information outside or even with the information that we kind of know already. Like, why is this business looking positive when everybody else is going down? And being willing to say, maybe somebody might not be telling me everything. Even that's liberating. <laughs> And the more that I have worked on investigations, the more comfortable I am telling you with some certainty that I cannot read other people's minds. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't done it successfully much at all, but I'm pretty good at figuring out evidence, asking questions and comparing things. And when three people tell me one thing and one person tells me something else, that kind of inquiry and skepticism is, is, is just really, it gets you to unique answers that you might not have gotten before. So following your curiosity helps even if you're not doing something that appears creative, it can some just, sometimes just help you do your job better. Mm -hmm. And I think fundamentally, when we all do our jobs a little better, the world is a little better. Yeah. So we've got that going for us. <laughs> we do. So before we go, just because what you just said made me wonder, has there been, and I don't know if there has, if you'll be able to tell us about it, but has there been a particular case where someone did something to hide something that was either so incredibly brainless or so phenomenally elaborate that it really stunned you? So one, one of the Linda-isms is, you know, there's nothing that curls my hair anymore, right? <laughs> I think I've seen it all. People who take money from sick children, people who take money from not-for-profit organizations that are serving other people, businesses that make decisions to represent one thing to the markets when something when that didn't happen you know all of those are kind of kind of awful in their own way and they're not awful theoretically but they're awful because mm -hmm. 
a problem with the investment market means that people's, you know, people's savings are harmed. Like retirement money is lost, pension money is lost. And or for not for profits, which are particularly vulnerable to fraud, their ability to achieve their mission is is impaired. You know, we that's not good. But of a wise person I heard from a couple of days ago at a different conference, I asked him, I apologize to him if he's listening, that I didn't attribute it to him, uh, but I think he'd probably prefer not to be named without <laughs> me checking in advance. I said, what should we be teaching students from what you see in your vantage point? It's a person that sees a lot of issues. And he said, I used to think when I did all of this work that I would find a really bad guy on the other side. And I would be very, very happy to be pushing against that, that bad behavior, bringing that behavior to justice. But inevitably, after I'd done all the work to pull this information together, I'd go in to interview the person or the person would be, you know, I would, I would somehow get a confrontation or a, a situation where I got to meet the person I had been investigating. And nine times out of 10, that person looked like my neighbor, looked like me. And the hardest thing about all of this is you, you see that, that a lot of the people who have made mistakes are like our neighbors and ourselves. And so one of the things I wish I could, that I wish we could, we could do is figure out how to, how to make that clearer, that we're always looking for the sensational story or we're always looking for the super bad guy, but nobody's in, in my life is wearing the evil mustache. No one is yelling, sees them as the, as the good guys run away. They're, they're just not caricatures. They are, they are human beings with human motivations and good behaviors and bad behaviors. They have children. So I think that, that a big part of what I, what I would love to teach is really about how do we do the good, steady work, the hard work of good management that keeps businesses and our, our coworkers, our enterprises and our communities healthy. And I've come to the conclusion that it's nothing more than hard work. I wish there was a solar bullet, still wishing I could find it. Well, I just cannot imagine a better place to stop than that. So perfect concluding comment. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much for doing this. This has been really, really fascinating. And I hope that other people are as fascinated by it as I am, because I think it's not the kind of thing that we hear about a whole lot. So this has been a lot of fun for me. Oh, well, it's fun for me too. That's our episode. Thanks again to Linda Schwartz for sharing her insights and stories with us and to you for listening. As always, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review and share this episode with a friend. It really helps me reach new people. Thanks so much. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.